with me, please, to the sixth chapter of the Gospel of John. John chapter 6. I love reading the uh, Gospel of John because uh, it reminds me of a family album. If you were to invite me over to your house and show me some of the uh, vacations that your family has taken and and I would be permitted to flip through your family album, I would learn things about you that I could not learn by a merely verbal account. Pictures make very vivid impressions upon us. And uh, that's what I think you have in the Gospel of John. John wants us to see God in the person of Jesus Christ, and he portrays for us in pictorial form the activities of, of God in the person of Christ. And uh, flipping through these pages and looking at the at the pictures of Jesus and the way he responded to people and the things that he did, the miracles that he carried out, all of these uh, these pictures tell us something about God. Now, uh, in John six, we have two pictures joined together, two stories: the feeding of the five thousand and that historic day when Jesus walked on. On the water. John must have felt that these stories are very, very significant for developing his, his theme. Because out of an entire year of our Lord's life, he, he selects only two stories. John is very selective in his, uh, in his treatment of these, of these miracles. Everything has to buttress and support his theme. And somehow he felt that these two episodes were, were the most important things that Jesus did during this year-long period of, of his life. Two events, the feeding of the 5,000 and the stilling of the storm and the day when Jesus walked on, on the water. Now, when you read John, you don't always see the connection between these two stories, but Mark makes it very clear that the two events are tied together. That's why I wanted to preach on them uh, as a unit. Because Mark tells the story of the feeding of the, of the 5,000. And then he tells the story of the events on the sea of Galilee. And uh, when Jesus walked across the water and still the, still the waves, and so startled the disciples, Jesus said to them, apparently you've not learned the lesson of the loaves. So the two are tied together, the lesson of the loaves and the events on the sea. And I want us to look at them uh, together in that way this morning. Now, uh, chapter 6, uh, actually the events in chapter 6 actually took place about six months after the healing of the man at the pool of, of Bethesda. Much had transpired during that time. Uh, Herod Antipas had beheaded John the Baptist and he went after Jesus' head. But our Lord avoided trouble by staying out of Herod's territory and moving throughout the countryside of Galilee, preaching and uh, uh, sending his disciples out to preach. There are a number of times where he sent them out on missions to preach in the little villages of, of Galilee. And uh, we're told in chapter 6, verse 1, that sometime after this, uh, that is, after the events that are described in chapter 5, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. 
Then Jesus went up on the hillside and sat down with his disciples. And the Jewish Passover feast was near. As our Lord and his disciples taught, they collected uh, a large following. Enormous numbers of people were gathered uh, around him to listen to him teach and uh, to be healed of their diseases. And our Lord felt the need to get away. We mustn't deny his uh, humanity. He not only was God, but he also was man. And there were times that he needed to get away from, from the crowds for two reasons. He needed rest. And he wanted to spend time with his apostles because we're drawing near to the end of his life. He has less than a year yet to live here in the incarnation. And he wanted to teach the apostles. He had many things to tell them before his departure. So there were times of withdrawal when he would take his disciples up into the mountains away from from the crowds. And uh, so he told the disciples to get in the boat. And they rowed across the northern end of the Sea of Galilee, over to the northeast shore, near the city of Bethsaida. And they retreated into the mountains to get away from people. But it was no use. The crowds continued to gather. And uh, we estimate from this this account that that more than 10,000 people gathered to hear Jesus preach. There were 5,000 men, we're told, excluding women and and children. This was a vast number. Wall-to-wall people. And uh, Jesus... As he moved uh, through the midst of this crowd, teaching them, touching them, and uh, healing them, he became aware of of their hunger. They'd come from vast distances. They hadn't made arrangements for a prolonged stay, and uh, they were very hungry. And we're told in verse verse 5 that when Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. He probably asked Philip this question because Philip was from Bethsaida, the little town that was uh, just three or four miles north of the seashore where they were teaching. And Philip would know where the fast food uh, outlets were. And uh, he would know the best sources for groceries. And uh, so he asked him, but he knew. He knew that Philip didn't really have the resources to purchase bread. This was, he, 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 at this point, he knew that Philip would not know what to do, because, but it didn't matter because Jesus knew what he was going to do. This was a test of Philip to see where Philip's faith lay, see, to test the measure of, of his dependence upon, uh, upon the Lord. And so he raised this question, how, how are we going to feed all this Uh, all these folks, this hungry horde. And uh, Philip answers as Madeline Murray O'Hare would answer, the famous atheist. He answers without even thinking once about what God can do. He's not counting upon God's ability. He's thinking purely in terms of human ability and what he can do. And he was helpless. He couldn't do anything. He says, why? He says, uh, eight months' wages. Wouldn't purchase enough for, for even a small bite for everyone. And we don't have that kind of money. What are, what are we going to do? He, he, he's somewhat despairing. You see, this question was designed to help Philip see that he was inclined to depend upon himself. These are the kind of questions that the Lord raises in our mind when he puts us in situations for which we're not adequate. We don't have what it takes. 
And our immediate thought is uh, to reckon upon ourselves and our ability, our background and our training and our personality and our wealth and the people of influence that we know. And we, we start trying to work things out from a human standpoint, but, but come to realize very quickly that we don't have what it takes. And that's what happened to Philip. He, he says to the Lord, we, we just we can't do it. We can't feed this, this crowd. Now, we know from the other gospel accounts that Jesus had said to the disciples, go, uh, go see who has food in the crowd. Now, go rustle up some, some food. Talk to people. See what kind of resources the people have. And apparently the disciples went throughout the crowd looking for lunches and, and uh, money to buy food. And either people didn't want to share their lunches or they hadn't thought to bring lunches. But uh, Andrew found a, a little boy. Verse 8, another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a, a, a little boy, uses the, the word for us, very small child. Uh, Andrew was a Scot, you know, he's the patron saint of Scotland. So uh, probably what he said was, here's a wee laddie, and uh, he's, got a, he's got a lunch. Uh, he has five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? He, he flunks the test, too. He found a little boy with a Darth Vader lunchbox and uh, peeked inside, and there were a couple of peanut butter sandwiches and an orange. This was a, a lunch that, his, that this little boy's mother had packed for him. Five barley loaves, very simple fare, uh, little pieces of pita bread about the size of a small pancake, and two... And he uses a word that means very small fish, like a sardine or an anchovy, a pickled fish of some kind, or a dried dried fish. Two very small fish and five little loaves. But Andrew says, what, what are they among so many? Well, uh, we're told that Jesus said, based upon what we have here, let's eat. Have the people sit down. Now, uh, you have to supplement this story from the other accounts, the other gospel accounts. The synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, give us detail that John does not. John wrote much later, about 30 years after the other writers, and he assumes that his readers have read the other accounts. So he doesn't try to give us the whole story. Mark tells us that they organized the crowd into groups of 50 or 100, and they sat down on the grass, and, and Mark says that, Peter, this was Peter's memories of this event. As Peter looked up and saw the hillside covered with people in, uh, in groups of 50 and 100, dressed in their colorful oriental garb, he, he, it reminded him of flower beds. That's the way Mark describes it. They were sitting in flower beds all over the grass, uh, all organized. That, that's something that human beings can do. They can organize people, but uh, the disciples couldn't feed them. So Jesus gets them all ready. Here they are, sitting in groups where the food can be distributed. And he takes one of these little pieces of bread in his hand. And everyone could see him. And they were all waiting to see what he would do. Now it says there, were, there was plenty of grass in that place. And the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. Jesus then took the loaves and gave thanks. Now, my question is, for what did he give thanks? Did he give thanks that there was enough to go around? I think he probably did. He thanked the Father for his provision for this group. 
a little pancake, about that big around, five of them. So the men would get one thousandth of one little pancake. And he thanks the Lord that there is a sufficient supply for this hungry horde. He gives thanks. Because he had this sense of expectancy that the Father would provide. And then we're told that he distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. And he did this with the fish also. Now Mark tells us how this miracle came about. I've, I've often wondered how it, how it happened, but Mark makes it very clear. He puts it this way, that Jesus gave thanks and he broke the bread. That is, he broke the bread into two pieces, each of these little pancakes. And he was giving it out, is the way John, uh, Mark puts it. He was giving it out to his disciples. In other words, he would take a piece of bread and he'd break off a little piece and another piece and another piece and another piece and pretty soon there'd be a little pile of bread. And the disciples would take the bread and apparently they put it in their knapsacks, the little L.L. Bean baskets that they wore in those days to carry all their gear. And they dumped all their gear out, their sleeping bags and cooking utensils and, and uh, they filled them with bread and then they'd go out to one of these groups and they'd pass the, the basket around and everybody would take as much as they want. No one went hungry. No one went without. No one was dissatisfied. Everybody had enough. There was enough to go around out of that little basket, out of that little lunch, little little brown bag lunch, you see. Bob Reverts puts it, it's not what you have in your lunch. It's who you give it to that counts. And he did the same with, with the fish. And when they all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. They took their little knapsacks, little little wooden knapsacks that they carried. And they went through the crowd, picking up what they couldn't eat, what was left over after everyone was full. And they picked up 12 baskets. And you know, that the 12 disciples would quickly recognize the significance of 12 baskets. One basket for every disciple. Not only was the crowd fed, but there was enough left over for the apostles. They had enough to eat for a week or so out of their little knapsacks. That's what the Lord provided for them. Now, what's the point of this of this story? Certainly, it uh, tells us something about our Lord's mastery over the elements of nature and His ability to to feed people out of this small amount of, of food is indicative of His power over all of nature. But I think there's something more here to be learned. As I said, this is a snapshot. It's a picture. It's designed to teach us something of of what God wants to do for us and what our Lord Jesus has done for us. I think this is a picture, this crowd coming together in their hunger is a picture of of the human race. It's a picture of us, those of us seated in this room this morning. We're hungry for all sorts of things. We're hungry for security and for significance, for worth, for meaning, for purpose. For righteousness, some of us have habits that bedevil us, and we long for righteousness and and godly uh, and, and a godly character. We hunger for those things. 
And uh, we try all sorts of things to feed ourselves, but, but nothing satisfies. Some of you have gone through divorces this past, this past year, and nothing is more devastating to a man or woman's self-worth than to go through a divorce, particularly when your partner turns and walks away from you, leaves you there desolate, and you're hungry for significance. You don't feel at all worthwhile. I was talking to a friend this past week, and we were talking about some of these vague personality disorders that we have and others have that make them so difficult to live with. You all know people like that. You can't put your finger on what's wrong, but they just always rub you the wrong way. And I've come to the conclusion that the problem is internal. It's spiritual, really. It's a way down deep inside. They don't feel significant. They don't feel worthwhile. They, they, they don't feel that they, that they have anything of value to present. So they compensate in various ways. They either open, overcompensate by being, uh, they compensate by being overly aggressive and, and they put you off because they come on too strong or they tend to withdraw and shrink into themselves. And it's difficult to get anything out of them or they're cold or they're brusque. But, but the problem is way down deep inside, they're hungry for significance and worth and security. And our Lord wants you to know, wants me to know, that all of those hungers are met in him. Now, next week we're going to talk about the discourse which follows. Because he, he, he performs the miracle, then he discourses on it, he, on it. He tells us what it means. But as a preview, verse 35, Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never, by any means, whatever, Go hungry. That's the lesson of the loaves. What you're looking for out there in the world, you're never going to find. Only Jesus can satisfy. Only Jesus can take away your hunger. That's the lesson of the loaves, and we need to get that into our mind. Now, uh, the people who were fed when they saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. We're going to talk more about this, uh, this belief next week because they kept trying to identify Jesus with Moses. To some extent they were right, to some extent they were wrong. In Deuteronomy 18, Moses said that God would raise up a prophet like him. And they kept waiting for a prophet like Moses. Moses fed the manna in the, in the wilderness, as you know, for 40 years while they were in the desert. Uh, they ate manna, and they, they, they felt that Moses provided that manna for them. We'll see that they were wrong. It was God who provided. Moses was simply the intermediary. But they thought Moses did it. And now here comes Jesus, and he feeds them bread. And they think, ah, another Moses. Here's the prophet we've been looking for. And they, they queue up waiting for lunch the next day, as we'll see. They, they just keep wanting to be fed. Here's a, an eternal bread line. Jesus is going to take care of their physical needs like Moses did. And they wanted to make him a king for that, for that reason. But uh, Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again into the hills by himself. wasn't time. wasn't time for him to be king. So he, he withdrew. Got away from the crowd. Now, the story that follows, as I said before, is connected. It's all of a piece. Look, look at verse 16. When the evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. 
Now, it, it's very interesting to me that according to the other gospel writers, Jesus had to force them to get into the boat and go off without him. I don't know why. I, I, I have to speculate. There, there are several reasons that come to mind. One is Herod was seeking to kill Jesus, and perhaps they were reluctant to leave him behind. For another, the crowd had probably turned ugly when he refused to be their king and walked away from them, and they were concerned about his health. But uh, the explanation that that, uh, I think comes closest to being the right one is that these men looked up and they saw the mare's tails and the signs of the front coming in and being mariners and knowing that body of water quite well, they were reluctant to push off into that wind. They could see a storm coming. And they really did not want to go. After all, they had just rowed all the way across the Sea of Galilee about six or eight hours before. Now they were going to turn back and row the same distance against the wind. And I think they were very reluctant to go. But they did it. And uh, Jesus went off into the hills to pray, the other gospel writers tell us. And they were planning, I think, to pick him up on the way back. That He would come down to the, sh- to, to the shore and they would pick him up. He'd get in the boat and he'd row back to Capernaum. But uh, it became dark, and Jesus didn't join them. And verse 18 says, A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. See, a galley is down in a trough, several hundred feet below zero, uh, below uh, sea level. <coughs> I was thinking about it last winter. And uh, when you get a low-pressure uh, system there, it sucks in wind from, from the Lebanese mountains, the, the um, mountains to the north. And the lake gets very turbulent, and the winds are very, very strong. And these men knew that. They, they could see it coming. They knew the signs. And they began to row. And as John goes on to tell us, they rowed for about six hours. And they made only about three and a half miles headway. So I'm sure their shoulders were aching and their hands were blistered. And uh, they were facing into the wind, trying to trying to make some progress. Mark tells us that they were blown several stadia, several thousand yards out into the into the sea. They weren't making much progress at all. The odd thing, John doesn't tell us this. The other gospel writers tell us that after Jesus completed this time of prayer and went down to the shore, perhaps found himself a rock to sit on, and he watched them struggling. Now, he didn't have X-ray vision. The, the, the moon may have been out. Those winds come even when there's no overcast. And you could see them struggling against the, against the waves and the wind. And they just weren't making any progress. And he let them struggle for six hours. He did nothing about it. Until the fourth watch, Matthew says, the fourth watch at shortly before dawn, sometime between 4 and, and 6 a.m. Here they were, pulling on the, on the oars, straining away making about a half a mile of progress every hour. And Jesus let them struggle. Didn't do a thing. And then, about 6 o'clock in the morning, as, as, it, as dawn came, he approached the boat. They saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water. And they were terrified. And so would you be, and so would I. They had never seen anyone walk on water. They they lived in a pre-scientific age, that's true, but they knew that men and women don't walk on water. 
They'd never seen Jesus do that before. And here, out of the mist, in the early morning, as the, as the sun was rising, they see this man walking on the water. And they thought he was a ghost, Mark says. And they cried out in terror. And Matthew tells us Jesus started to walk by. He looked as though he was going to walk right by them, totally oblivious to their presence on the Sea of Galilee. And then he cried out to them, Be of good courage. Don't be afraid. It is I. And uh, though John doesn't tell us, I don't know why, he doesn't tell us. This was the time when Peter shouted to Jesus across the waves, Lord, if it's you, command me to come. And Jesus said, come. And Peter walked on the water. Walked all the way to Jesus. And then he, as you know, he grew frightened and and uh, he began to sink. And Jesus immediately reached in, you know, as the bubbles came up. And he grabbed Peter and pulled him up. And they walked together back, back to the boat. And we need to realize that what our Lord did, he did in his humanity. He never acted out of his deity. He tells us that. He only did what he saw the Father doing. He only said what the Father said. Everything that, that was accomplished was accomplished uh, by faith. And the Father, Jesus, walked on water as a man in dependence upon the Father. And that's why Peter could walk on the water. He was acting upon the same basis that Jesus was acting. He did it by faith. He walked across the waves. And uh, it says they welcomed him into the boat. And John doesn't tell us this, but the other gospel writers tell us that the moment he stepped into the boat, the sea became like glass. The winds abated. And immediately... They were at Capernaum. There are actually two miracles. The waves were still. The wind was, was calm. And, uh, the, and without any, any rowing, without any effort on their part, they immediately arrived at the dock in, in Capernaum. They came to their destination. And I have to ask myself, what, what is the point of this story? Why is it here? What does it picture? Well, uh, simply stated, I think it's this. Jesus will take you through the storms of life and bring you safely home to heaven and to home. Now, he doesn't promise that things will be easy. There will be storms along the way. Life will not always be stormy, but there will be intermittently storms along the way. But our Lord is in control. Nothing is beyond his purview. He knows where we are. He sees us. And even though he seems to be indifferent and seems to be absent, he sees us and he knows. And at the right time, he's available. He may delay his coming to teach us how inadequate we are. But he will arrive. And when we take him into our circumstances, into our boat, he brings about peace. He will see us through the storms of life. And bring us safely home. Now bear in mind that the Lord did not send this storm. This was not a supernatural occurrence. This was a natural phenomenon. Storms strike that lake on a regular basis. Jesus perhaps, being a good mariner himself, would read the signs as the disciples would. He knew the storm was coming. But he did not create the storm. The storm came because we live in a fallen world. And storms will come. But our Lord sent them into the storm, knowing full well that he could protect them and keep them safe until they arrived at their destination. 
And the same is true for you and for me. You see, the lesson of the loaves teaches us that God is our resource. And the story of the storm teaches us that he is our resource in times of trouble, when stormy, adverse circumstances come, that those do not overwhelm our Lord. He is our supply. Whatever you need, he's adequate to provide. Now, some of you will have stormy weather this coming week or this coming year. Perhaps it will mean a divorce or desertion or physical affliction or the collapse of your health or maybe a problem in your job. We don't need to ask for trouble and we don't particularly look forward to it or look for it. Nevertheless, we live in a fallen world and storms will come. They're inevitable. But our Lord sees and he knows and he's sufficient. And if you take him into your circumstances, he'll provide for your needs and he'll see you safely through to the other side. People that understand that lesson, the lesson of the loaves, have a different look about them. They really do. They, 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 they look peaceful. You can see it in their eyes and in their demeanor. They're not frazzled and frayed and frenzied and uptight and worried and anxious. Those times may come and they may have to remind themselves of our Lord's words, don't keep on being afraid. Nevertheless, they just have a different way of approaching life. They don't complain and they don't gripe about the adversity of life because they realize that these times will come And ultimately, they are for their good. And our Lord will see to it that they have everything they need to go through that set of circumstances. A tragic death in the family, a disappointing set of circumstances, the loss of a job, the breakup of a marriage, the collapse of a romance, whatever it might be. Our Lord is sufficient. You can eat of him and be satisfied. Nothing else will satisfy you, but he will, you see. And we're so inclined to forget. We all forget. I do. I know you do. The disciples did. The interesting story in Mark 8 follows hard on the heels of the feeding of the 4,000. Jesus fed 5,000 on one occasion, and and a bit later he he fed 4,000. And on that particular uh, occasion, there were seven baskets left over, which has symbolic value, I think. Uh, seven throughout the, uh, the New Testament and the Old Testament seems to suggest completeness, fullness. And the seven baskets left over seems to suggest to the disciples that God would fully, our Lord Jesus would fully meet their, their needs. And uh, they got into the boat and they started across the other side. And Jesus started to teach them. He wanted to, to tell them something very important. And he said, don't. Don't, uh, watch, don't forget what I told you about the Pharisees. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And that word leaven triggered something in their mind. And one of them, probably Peter, said, Oh, no, we forgot the bread. How can we be so stupid? We left the seven baskets of bread on shore. And they apparently got all upset. And they were blaming each other. Peter said, Matthew, I told you to get the bread. Why didn't you put it in the boat before we left? And Jesus said, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. Have you forgotten the lesson of the loaves? When I fed 5,000, how many baskets were left over? 
12, they said. When I fed the uh, the 4,000, how many were left over? Seven, he said. Have you forgotten the lesson of the loaves? Even if you forget to bring bread, even if you don't follow through faithfully, even if you, you make mistakes, it's all right. I'm here to provide. It's not what's in your lunch that matters. It's not what's in your knapsack that matters. It's who you bring it to. So you bring the little broken bits and pieces of your life to our Lord, and He takes it, and He makes something out of us. He satisfies us fully, and He puts us to His intended purpose. That's the lesson of the law, which you and I tend to forget, but we should never forget it. This last week, Carolyn and I were talking about a group that we used to meet with in the San Francisco Bay Area. It was a remarkable group. I never could figure out how I got into it. Uh, three of the uh, uh, couples in the group, the men were finishing up their last year of an MBA program at Stanford. One of the men was a professional football player. Another was uh, a, uh, a national sales manager for a pneumatic tool company uh, on his way to becoming a very wealthy man. There were a couple of educators, the principal of a local school. Uh, I tell you that simply so to make the point that these were people who had it made. They, they were people that were going to make a great deal of money, and they did. Some of those men became very wealthy, very prominent uh, businessmen. And uh, they were uh, these men and their wives were a very attractive group to be around. They had it all going for them. And uh, we used to gather just to look into the Scriptures together, and, and we learned a great deal from each other, from reading and meditating upon the Word and praying together. All of us, all of us grew together. And uh, then some interesting things began to happen to that group. Within a couple of years, two of the couples had broken up. In one case, one of the women had an affair. In another case, the man had an affair and the marriages broke up. These were men and women who, when we were studying the scriptures, were committed to Christ. But the storms began to blow. And their family fell apart. One of the couples had an autistic child. Another of the couples, the the wife was involved in an automobile accident and uh, lost her unborn child. child. She was about eight months pregnant. The child died. She was physically and mentally impaired from that time on. She still is uh, to this day. One of the men almost immediately thereafter lost his job. He was faced with a moral question. He simply could not compromise his Christian belief. He made a decision. He's fired. Lost a $100,000 a year job. Uh, he actually never had a job after that because shortly after that they discovered he had a tumor on his brain and he died. One of my best friends. One thing after another happened to that group of people. And uh, Miltini Lee was one of the, the women in that group. You may remember Miltini. She spoke to our women here a couple of years ago, and uh, what comes through loud and clear with Miltini is her love for God and her walk with Christ and her maturity in the faith. And Carolyn was talking to her about that time, and we were reminiscing back over the group and where all these people were, and, and the question came up, did God select that particular group of people for special testing? And Miltini's comment was, no, no, she said, that's just life, that's life. She's right. You know, that's life. I, 
I, as I look around the, the room and I see faces, I realize that's life. That's, that, that's reality. That's where we live, all of us. God doesn't send those afflictions our way, but we live in a fallen world and they, they come our way day after day after day and we do not know what lies ahead. Miltini said, no, that's just life. But that time that we met together as couples studying the Word was preparation for life. See, she had learned the lesson of the lowest. Now, that's the way the Lord teaches us, takes us aside, feeds us with himself, teaches us the lesson of the lowest, then sends us out knowing full well that storms will come, afflictions will will be our, our lot. But nevertheless, if we know the lesson of the lows, and we invite him, we welcome him into our circumstances, he'll take care of us. He'll protect us. He'll give us stability. He'll give you strength. He'll give you wisdom. He'll give you the beauty and winsomeness of character that you long for. And he'll take you through safely to heaven and to home. Let's pray. Uh, Father, it's just so good to be reminded again of this lesson that you taught your disciples so long ago, but one which you teach us day after day, the lesson of your sufficiency. As the apostle reminds us, it is not that we are sufficient of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. And uh, we believe you, we trust you, we take the little pieces of our life, And we give them to you. And we expect you to take them and make something of them. And we feast upon you, the one who is our source of life. Thank you that you've taken away the the hungers of our life. You've satisfied us fully with yourself. Now help us through the week as the winds blow and and the difficult times come. and, And we think our ship is going to sink to remember this lesson. And to welcome you into our circumstances and cling to you for all we're worth, knowing that you're adequate for anything that we have to face, that every demand is ultimately a demand upon you. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.